Welcome to the 66th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Mark Henshaw, author of the new suspense thriller, Red Cell. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Mark Henshaw, author of the new thriller novel, Red Cell. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Sure. Well, first, can I get you to read the first three or four paragraphs of Red Cell? Yeah, I can probably do that for you. From the prologue, uh, Caracas, Venezuela. The floods had killed another dozen people this year, all nameless caraqueños who lived in the shanty towns that covered the hills around the capital city. The mudslides had cut swaths through the slums a week before and dumped the dead into the concrete channel that cut Caracas in half and barely held the Guare River in its course. Now the canal swelled to its rim with dirty December water and whatever had lined the Caracas streets between the hills and the city center. Cars driving above sent a constant spray into the river, adding a strange sound to the gurgling rush, like the hand of God tearing paper. The brown water was barely barely visible in the moonlight under this stretch of the Autopista Francisco Fajardo freeway. The shadows turned the canal graffiti into silent monsters watching the flood, waiting to laugh at anyone foolish enough to play along the water's edge. Kira Stryker trudged along the north side of the river, staying off the dirt embankment and giving herself enough distance that a stumble wouldn't send her in. The canal was too steep and the river's current too strong for anyone who fell in to climb out again. The only question was whether the poor soul would expire from the pollution or drown on his way to the Caribbean Sea. However, she was going to die. She wasn't going to go that way, she promised herself. It would be no trouble for the enemy to come up behind her here. She'd given up trying to identify possible ambush spots. There were too many, and the river would be the perfect tool for killing a CIA officer and disposing of the body in a stroke if the Sabine, the Servicio Bolivariano de Inteligencia, were so inclined. They hadn't been so reckless, yet, but the murder rate in Caracas would make it an easy matter to write off her disappearance. The police, as corrupt as the criminals, would wag their fingers at the embassy officer sent to file the missing persons report. A woman walking alone at night in a dark barrio? Americans need to be more careful, they would say. Her dirty blonde hair pulled into a braid was already wet from the evening drizzle, and she shoved her hands into the empty pockets of her jacket to keep them dry. The rain was keeping most of the natives off the street, which left her feeling exposed. Tall, fair-haired, even dressed down in blue jeans and a brown leather jacket, she didn't mix well with the normal street crowds in this city. It could have been worse. More than a few of her farm classmates had drawn slots in Africa and the Middle East, both murderous places for Americans in their own ways, where her only way to disappear would have been under an abaya. Caracas offered civilized living, with natives more friendly to Americans than the government. That made the capital a hostile but not lethal environment in which to hone her craft, at least during the daylight hours. But working the capital streets at night was another matter. Great. the first four. Great. Well, if the listeners haven't heard about your new novel, Red Cell, yet, can you you describe what the novel is about? Yeah. um, The novel is about a pair of CIA officers. One is Kara Stryker, who I just read about, who is a brand new um, case officer whose first mission does not go very well. 
and she gets assigned to a unit called the Red Cell, which is sort of the CIA's out-of-the-box analytic think tank. There she's paired up with another officer named Jonathan Burke, who's, you know, kind of alienated people with his uh, sort of brusque manner. But he's a very smart guy and who's able to sort of pick up on a lot of the analytic options and conclusions that other analysts in the building tend to miss. And so not long after they're paired up together, um, an event breaks in China where there's a shootout in Taiwan which antagonizes the Chinese government, and the Chinese government starts to actually uh, make military moves on the island. And when the United States begins to move in and send in the aircraft carriers, the Chinese basically are not intimidated at all, which is very unusual. And so the CIA director assigns these two analysts to try and figure out why are the Chinese acting so confident that they can uh, defeat the United States in the event that they're going to go to war over Taiwan. And so as they go and they try and unravel this mystery, they uncover a, an agency asset in China named Pioneer, who's worked for the agency for about 25 years, and he's got information which they need to be able to solve the case. But his cover has been blown, and so trying to connect with him and get that information becomes very problematic. And the entire book uh, shifts from agency headquarters later to China and then over into the South China Sea. And I won't give away the ending of the sure, story. Sure, sure. Um, but anyway, it's about how these two outcast uh, agency officers come together and complement each other to go and sort of solve this bigger mystery that's playing out on the world stage. Right. Well, I know from your bio that, that you were a CIA analyst yourself. Are, are you still working with the CIA, or, or are you at liberty to say that? I mean, yeah, I actually am. I'm I'm an overt officer. I'm not undercover. So and and an so so I, I, what are the rules when when you decided that you wanted to be a fiction writer and specifically Red Cell, which deals with um, you know international uh, events in the CIA? Do, do they have to vet your novel before you're able to submit it for publication? Yeah, they did. Um, Every CIA officer, when they join the organization, they sign a contractual agreement which says that uh, anything that you want to write for outside publication or presentation has to get reviewed by uh, an internal agency group called the Publications Review Board. Um, and that goes for fiction as well as nonfiction stuff. So when I decided that I wanted to do this, it was a little unusual. You don't have a lot of CIA officers who are writing this kind of fiction, you know, the the ones who do tend to write, you know, end up writing more like memoirs and, and right. those kinds of things. So I went on ahead and I wrote the, the book, and then when the time came, I had to submit it to them and had to get it vetted through them to satisfy them that I was not actually releasing any classified information. Had a couple of, you know, a few little fights back and forth with them on a few little points in the book, but I, you know, won those arguments pretty much, and... Uh, once they had signed off on it, then everything went forward from there. And and given given that process, uh, I can only assume that you you're really driven to write fiction. I mean, most people would not want to go through that. I guess the hassle. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd kind of you know written a little fiction here and there on and off when I was younger, and I was one of those guys who had always sort of had that dream of you know writing a book and seeing it in the bookstore with your name on. It. And I think every you know author kind of has that. Um, so, yeah, it was a little intimidating, the thought that, you know, 
I was going to have to go through that process. I mean, I could have written something, I could have written a cookbook or something, and then I wouldn't have <laughs> to go through them because, you know, if it's, if it's something that doesn't have anything to do with espionage or international affairs, you, you really don't have to go through that. Right. Um, did, yeah, did, did, they, were, you, were you ever tempted to write like a fantasy or science fiction so you wouldn't have to go through the review board? Um, well, not fantasy. That's not right. my thing. Science right. fiction, I had thought about. I mean, yeah. I was a, you know, a diehard science fiction fan from the time I was a kid. But, sure, sure. You know, ultimately decided that, no, this, this was what I really wanted to write. I had the story in my head, and this was where I wanted to go. And I just decided I was not going to take counsel from my fears, and I was going to go on ahead. And so, you know, went on ahead and did it, and I just I wrote the book that I wanted to write. And didn't censor myself too much as I was writing it, tried not to think too hard about, you know, well, are they going to strike this down and strike that down or whatever. Right, right. Um, you know, so pounded it out and got it through, and the process was actually um, surprisingly smooth. You know, the, the people at the Publication Review Board have been doing this long enough, and they have reviewed enough books and other kinds of things that, you know, their processes and procedures are very well established and so, you know, went through and they were actually quite easy to work with and they were able to turn the entire thing around surprisingly quickly, um, given the, the length of it. That's so, right. yeah, it, it went on through. It wasn't, it, a, wasn't a real hindrance. And, and what has been the reaction of your co-workers to, to Red Cell? Have, have any of them read it yet? Because I know it's just coming out. Yeah, um, the the only ones who have read it, uh, a, a couple of my managers had to read it because they one, one of the things the publication review board has to make sure is that by publishing this book that it's not going to you know severely hinder your ability to do your day job or, right. or hurt the agency's ability to do its job. So they had to send it back to my managers to have them go through it, and so a couple of them have actually gone through it and they really liked it. Um, none of my immediate co-workers have read it, but all the ones who are aware that the book is coming out have actually been quite excited for it. And I even um, got a couple of emails from the actual members of the CIA Red Cell who heard that this thing was coming out, and they were very excited. So I'm <laughs> going to have to go over and give them a couple of copies. That's that's um, great. Yeah. yeah, very positive reaction inside the building. So as much as, you know, as much as you're allowed, obviously, can, can you talk a little bit about um, your experience? What, what What is the life of a CIA analyst like? What, what are you doing kind of on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's certainly a lot more boring than, you know, the movies or the TV <laughs> would make it seem. <laughs> um, you know, I've actually seen a poster, you know, up on the wall where, you know, it basically captioned what everybody thinks we do and it's got you know pictures of people from the movies and stuff and then it says you know what we actually do and it's got like a, a screenshot from the tv show the office <laughs> you know kind of, a, kind of a thing um you know you know when you when you come on as an analyst um you get assigned to the directorate of intelligence which is one of the agency's four directorates and that's the one that has the the analytic cadre and you go to work for a group which either looks at a country or a region. Uh, you might be a leadership analyst where you're actually studying a person or a set of people. Um, you may look at a terrorist organization or, or some other kind of thing which cuts across national boundaries. But whatever you end up looking at, you get assigned an account. You know, it's, it's your defined region or whatever that you're looking at. And you just, you know, you come on in in the morning and you fire up the computer and you just start sorting through all of the information, you know, from 
you know, just even public news reports to information coming in from the field from agency case officers who are the real collectors out in the field. Mm -hmm. It's wherever you can get all that information. And you put it together and assimilate it, and you just try and develop a sort of a cohesive picture of what is really going on. And then you take that and you do a couple of different things with it. You may write it up in the form of an article for the President's Daily Briefing, or some of the other longer um, forms that we have for getting finished intelligence put out. So you spend a lot of time reading, a lot of time writing. I uh, also spend a lot of time briefing and giving presentations to people. Um, mm-hmm. Every morning, for example, the president gets a, a briefing called the President's Daily Briefing. He has a dedicated briefer who goes in and they sit down with him and they have a book of you know, what are sort of the most important things that you know they think the president needs to see on a daily basis. And so you go out and you'll give briefings to, to policymakers and other customers who are interested in whatever your account happens to be. So those tend to be sort of the big things that you do. Um, and then, you know, once you're done with those kinds of things, you sort of sit back and think about, you know, what's the information that I would really like to have but don't, that I'm not getting, what are the gaps in the intelligence? And you try and find ways to do what we call drive collection. You know, how can I go fill in those gaps? Can right. I task people in the field? Do I need to go talk to outside academics? Do I need to do various other things to go get this information and bring it in and sort of give me that picture? Gotcha. So, yeah, that's what an analyst like is like. It, it's, it's generally a very academic kind of thing. If, if you're the kind of person who, you know, would have enjoyed being a perpetual student in college, it's very much that kind of a thing. You're always learning. You're always writing. Right. It, it, it's interesting, and I'm sure that as you were mentioning about uh, gathering data from from agents in the field, or, and also from public media, I, I'm sure that I'm sure that social media is is offering a a, a really interesting. Um, I would say both gathering point and also a dilemma of how do you how do you you know sift through that. Um, I actually just recently read an article. It was a um, I have to say I didn't I, I I didn't follow the person's Twitter feed myself, but but there was a really interesting article about the the uh, editor at NPR who basically kind of ended up being in charge of of their. Um, for the lack of a better word, Twitter analysis of the the Arab Spring, and and they were talking about this guy's daily uh, process of gathering and where he was basically vetting information across multiple uh, social media channels to figure out if people were you know if what they were saying was was accurate accurate. Um, and it, it was just a fascinating article about how you know information has really changed and how someone sitting in NPR's uh, offices in in uh, I guess, you know, somewhere in the Washington, D.C. area was was, you know, uh, you know, was was almost as as um, tuned into what was happening on, on the Arab streets as people who were there. Yeah. And, you know, the, the interesting thing is you, you look at Twitter and Facebook and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, those are actually just part of a bigger trend, which started, you know, probably 30 years ago. I mean, I remember when CNN first went on the air, you know, Mm -hmm. the first 24-hour news channel came on, and how that changed things. Before then, you know, you never saw the news on TV until 6 o'clock at night, you know, the nightly news with Walter Cronkite or whatever, and once 24-hour cable news television came in, that really sort of impacted the cycle 
of how fast information was coming in and how fast not just analysts could consume information and receive it, but how fast policymakers downtown could get it. You know, because once that happened, they were seeing it, you know, just about as fast as the agency was. Right. And right. so that that very much changed the schedule. And then, you know, in in the late 80s and early 90s, you you have the rise of the Internet, and it really exploded in the late 90s and, and just sort of accelerated that even faster. You know, and now you do have the social media and the Twitter and all those kinds of things, which are just sort of amping it up even further where, you know, now not only can people access information faster, but people can produce information much more quickly. Right. I mean, in the you know the mid '90s, if somebody wanted to go and put that kind of information onto the internet, they had to go build a web page. Right. You know, and not everybody knew how to do that. So even though you had this big thing that a lot of people could access, not everybody was a publisher. Right. And so that's how Twitter and Facebook are, are making it faster. Is now suddenly everybody is not just a consumer of information, but they're now a publisher of information as well. Exactly. So it does. Yeah, it does. It does present interesting problems in terms of how fast information moves, how much information gets created, how do you sort through, make sense of it, decide what's important, what's not, all those other kinds of things. It's a problem that, you know, lots and lots of people inside the government and out are grappling with, and it's going to be a while before I think anybody solves that problem. Right, right. But but analysts have been, you know, fighting that problem for quite a while now that just, you know, information is just pouring in faster than people can consume it. Sure, sure. Well, there was a recent cover story in in Bloomberg's Business Week about China's corporate espionage. The story was basically pointing out that the problem is much more widespread than most people realize. Do you think that that we may end up fighting a war with China that's not a conventional war per se, but that's more a war of corporate espionage and even cyber war? Yeah, I mean, that's that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, there's only so much that I can say on that particular sure, subject. Sure. But, you know, it, it it is a real concern, I know, for, you know, American businesses and for the government um, in that, you know, China is the biggest, you know, one of the biggest markets in the world where, you know, companies want to be there to do business because it's this sort of huge untapped market for their products. But the Chinese government you know, is facing a problem in that they're trying to create something like 20 or 25 million new jobs a year. Um, And so to do that, they are very definitely leveraging, you know, their ability to force U.S. companies to go in and make certain arrangements, you know, to even do business there. Right. And so, you know, if, if you have a situation where, you know, you have some critical intellectual property that can easily be lifted or stolen, and, it, you know, it is very much a concern, something to be dealt with. So you, you do have a country that has a very strong economic motivation to not exactly play by the, the rules of, you know, the, the that we would consider fair in this country. Right. Um, so, you know, it, it, it very definitely is a concern for the government. I know that it, you know, I, I've, I've talked to a lot of people who are, are concerned about it, and the question is how do you address it? Um, and, you know, there are no good technological silver bullets right. in cybersecurity. There is no single product that you can buy to go and protect yourself and, and do that. There's a whole range of things. You know, you got to build security around your intellectual property in ways that a lot of companies just are not familiar with doing and aren't even necessarily comfortable doing in, in some cases. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's going to be a big concern going forward for a long time. Sure. Um, so what was the impetus for you to sit down and, and write uh, Red Cell? 
Well, you know, that's an interesting story. Um, I, I had talked for a long time about, you know, with my wife about writing a book. Um, and it was one of those things where I kind of, you know, I would talk about it, but I never actually sat down and really did it. And one day at work at the agency, I found out that I had won an exceptional performance award, which came with a, a financial bonus, about $1,500 or something like that. And I was, you know, talking, I came home to talk to my wife about it, and she and I, you know, we were recently graduated from college. We still had student loans hanging over our heads, that kind of thing. And so I came home and I said, well, I, I earned this extra $1,500. Which student loan do you want to throw it at? <laughs> and my wife says, we're not going to throw it at a student loan. And I was like, well, what do you want to do with it? And she said, you're going to take that $1,500 and you're going to buy a Mac PowerBook, as they were called in those days, and you're going to use it to go write that book that you keep talking about. You know, She said, you're the kind of person who won't undertake a big project unless you get invested in it. And so that's going to be your investment is we're going to use that money and you're going to buy that laptop and it's just for writing that book. But here's the catch. She said, you have one year to write that book. And if you don't finish it, I get the laptop. <laughs> that's so a great I story. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, she, she doesn't want to motivate me. So I said, absolutely, let's do it. And we, we literally went out and, and ordered the, the power book that night. Um, Unfortunately, it actually took me closer to five years to write the novel because, uh -oh. we, you know, we moved houses twice and we had a couple of kids in there and other things right. happened. But <laughs> she was merciful and she let me keep the laptop anyway. Um, but that's sort of how we got started was my wife just decided that it was time that I got writing. And, you know, she, she even told me, she said, I don't care if you get published. You know, I just think <laughs> you need to be writing and you just need to finish this book. Because you, you have a talent for this and you need to be doing it. Um, so I took her at her word and said, okay. And that's how the whole project got kicked off. Took that's me great. About, you know, three, yeah, three, three, four months after that to actually finally hone the story in my head that I really wanted to tell and find the right tools to use on the computer to write it. But uh, that's how we got going. And what kind of tools do you use? Well, uh, currently I just... I actually find it's easier to still just write on a laptop than it is on any other thing. So I have a Mac 13-inch, uh, an Apple MacBook right now. And the software that I use for it is a program called Scrivener, mm -hmm. which is a writing tool which is created by a, a British gentleman um, who runs a company called Literature and Latte. And, you know, for the first probably two years that I was writing the novel, I experimented with all kinds of word processors, all kinds of other writing tools, and nothing really worked well. You know, I found out in a hurry that word processors are actually really badly designed for writing long novels. Right. And it, it was turning into a very painful exercise trying to do this. And then the day that I found that tool and I just downloaded the demo and just started working with it, it just suddenly became so much easier. Um, I just immediately went out and I spent, I guess it was $30 in those days is what they charged for it, and immediately started writing. And from there, the rest of the process of writing the book just took off. So Scrivener is really my big writing tool that I use. Um, and you just got to go down and go out and download a demo of that thing and try it for yourself and see all the capabilities. There's far too many for me to work right. off here. And so, it, yeah, it's a great tool. That, that's great. And so you, you said it took you probably approximately five years. What, what was the process like for publication? Did you work with an agent and did you have to end up revising the, the, the novel? What, what was that like? 
Yeah, I did have to do some. It, uh, from the time I finished the draft to the time I got my agent was a little bit less than a year. I finished the first draft in August of 2008, I guess it was. And it took, took me almost another year to go get the agent. Um, he's uh, Jason Yarn at Paradigm. And so he took it, and he and I went back and forth, and you know, he made some edits and some suggestions and other things. He actually uh, had me write the prologue to the book. If you go and you look at the book, uh, uh, that was actually, the prologue was actually the last thing that I wrote. I had started the book at chapter one, and it was a, a, a slower start to the story. Right. I said, I think we, we ought to start it with something that's a little more, you know, uh, a little more action up front. So I went and I wrote that, and I had to go back and submit the prologue to the Publication Review Board for clearance and get that put in there. So it took us a few months to, to get it in good shape. And then Jason took it, and he sent it around to probably a dozen different publishing houses, you know, most of the really big ones. And, you know, we got some feedback from some of them, and it was it was generally very positive, but, you know, all of them turned it down for a variety of reasons. So after we'd gotten, you know, five or six rejections, Jason said, okay, let's pull it back for a minute, let's go back, let's attack it again. And so we did. We pulled it back from them. We went back. We made some more changes, did some more rewrites on it, and then he went out and he submitted it um, again to several more publishing houses. And the second time around, uh, Touchstone, you know, which is a Simon & Schuster imprint, they they really bit on it um, and went on ahead and said that they, you know, would like to publish it. So we went ahead with them, and... Uh, it got assigned to Lauren Spiegel, who's my editor now at uh, Touchstone. And so she went through and she did the editing and some more suggestions and some more, you know, changes to the thing, and that went on for a little while. Um, so, you know, from the time I got my agent to the time that we finally had gotten it to that point where everything was good and, and Touchstone thought that they really had something or were ready to go ahead, that was almost another year. Wow. Um, <clears throat> So then, you know, last summer they came out and said, we're happy with it, let's go on ahead, and they set the publication date for May 1st of this year. And so they went on ahead and they did that, and once they had the publication date set, then it was a matter, you know, they, they went and they created the, the wonderful cover that they've got. It was, you know, far better than anything I ever would have come up with. And, you know, then we went through the whole copy editing process, um, going through and just weeding out all those little spelling errors and grammatical errors that always seem to, you know, escape everybody's notice. Right. And we went through and we did all that, you know, a couple of times and, and did some various other things. And, you know, finally sort of really locked it down with the the copy editing and the layout and all that kind of stuff and got it just about last Christmas is, I think, where we finally were, were settled with it. Great. So. Well, are you working on another novel now? I am working on another novel. I, uh, Jason asked me to get going on another one, so I'm working on one that will be a sequel to Red Cell, same characters, uh, different story, different plot. Um, I'm just about done with the research phase on that one, and I've already started writing. I've got the first couple of chapters pounded out. I'm still working on the outline a little bit. You know, any any novel writer will tell you that the second act of the book, sort of that middle third, is always the really hard part to write. and that's the area where I'm really working hard on the outline to get that all hammered out. So um, we'll see how long it takes me to get it out. I hope to be able to finish writing it this year. And if, you know, Red Cell sells well, then we'll go on ahead and see what happens with that one. Great. Well, um, given your experience thus far with Red Cell, what tips or advice would you offer for aspiring writers? For aspiring writers? Mm-hmm. Well, 
the the first thing definitely is you got to remember that persistence uh, persistence actually I think counts for more than talent in this game. Um, it's the kind of thing where you got to keep going hard. Um, you know, in, in talking to some agents and some editors and some other people in this business, you know, they told me something very interesting I hadn't realized. They said, you know, of all the people out there, for every hundred people out there who say that someday they want to write a book, probably one out of that hundred will actually go and write a complete manuscript. So if you just complete a manuscript, you're ahead of the game. You're ahead of 99% of the other people who mouth off saying someday they want to write a book. You know, and then once you get that manuscript written, then you have to go back and the editing and the rewriting is all very tedious. The going going through the process of trying to find an agent, you know, it, you end up shotgunning 10 or 12 agents with cover letters at a time and you know, you get rejected and it's it's kind of a long hard slog to for that aspiring writer to go through and get that first book done. And you just have to be willing to just keep going and keep going and keep going until it happens. I mean, it took me from 2003 until 2012 to get Red Cell out. So we're talking about eight and a half years to get my first book done. Um, and you just have to just keep going and going and going. Um, you know, so I've, I've, I've kind of decided that in most people's cases, it's not a lack of talent that stops them from getting published. It's a lack of persistence and the willingness to keep driving through and keep doing what you got to do to get to the end of the process. Um, and it's the kind of thing that you definitely have to love because if you don't love doing it, any rational person would sort of throw their hands up in the air and quit halfway through. Um, the other thing that I would, you know, definitely say to an aspiring writer, you know, is I was surprised at how much I had to learn about just the the mechanics of the publishing industry and the financial pressures that are being put on publishers these days and how that affects the books that they're willing to put out. Um, you really do need to learn that side of the business to, to be able to do this. Because when I wrote my first draft of Red Cell um, and finished it, it was 180,000 words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the first agent that I sent it out to... Um, actually responded in person and he said my my he said I, I think you got a great concept I think you're a good writer but here's my one piece of advice to you cut this thing down to about a hundred thousand words <laughs> you know because he said right now with all the pressures that are on the publisher and all these you know all these organizations just nobody's gonna look at a book by a first-time writer over about a hundred to hundred and ten thousand words which kind of you know scared me because you know, he was basically saying, I want you to cut that book almost in half. Right, right. Um, which was tough. And But, you know, I went around and I, I did some more research on the business and the industry and found out, yeah, that's that's kind of right. You know, publishing a 180,000-word book by a first-time author is would be a considerable gamble for some of these people. And a lot of publishing houses just, you know, the financial pressures leave them in a they're not in a position to do that. Right. So I went through and I cut it down to about 110,000 words. And I, you know, I had to kill some babies to make it happen. I had to whack some <laughs> paragraphs and whole pages I really, really loved. Um, but yeah, but I got it down. And that, once that must I got have been down, an education in and, in and of itself right there. 
Oh, that was hard. That was so hard. I mean, there were, you know, whole whole characters in the book died and, <laughs> you know, whole subplots got whacked out and excised and all kinds of stuff. And I, I probably learned more about writing from that process than I did, you know, writing the whole first draft in the first place. But once I got it down to about 110,000 words, I suddenly found that a lot more agents and other people were, you know, they became much more responsive, much more willing to pick it up and take a read. And not too long ago, I you know was talking to Lauren, my editor at Touchstone, and I just mentioned to her that my first draft was 180,000 words, and she just literally gasped. You know, it just it <laughs> scared her the thought of having to go through a 180,000 word book. Um, yeah. So anyway, it's that's you know those those are just the kinds of things you need to understand to make it. Is you have to understand the pressures that are being put on publishing houses and on editors and all these kinds of things. They are constraints that those people have to work within, you know, and if you show up with a book that falls outside of those constraints, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter if it's really well written, Right. you know, the pressures are such that they'll look at it and say, yeah, you know, you're a talented writer, but I can't do anything with this. Right. So you, It's okay you, if you your name is George R.R. R. Martin, but other than that, no. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if you're Tom Clancy and you have 50 million books in print, exactly. you, can write whatever you, you can write whatever you want. Yeah, because, you yeah. know, there are certain authors where they know, you know, we just got to put this guy's name on the cover of a book and it will sell X exactly. number of copies and, and go. Um, but with a first-time writer, they don't have that luxury. And right. it would be too much of a gamble to do something like that. So, you know, it hurts, you know, to have to go through and whack your stuff up for reasons that have nothing to do with, you know, how good the story is or, or how good the writing is. But it's it's just the reality of the situation. You have to accept it and go on. And it's much easier if you understand that when you start writing the book than it is to learn that the way I did after you've written 180,000 words and then find you have to go cut it in half before anybody will take a look at it. So, so those are kind of my two pieces of advice. Be, be persistent and learn the, learn the mechanics and the financials of the industry and it will make your life much easier. Right. Well, again, we've been speaking with Mark Henshaw, author of the new thriller novel, Red Cell. The book is available in bookstores now and is available as an ebook. Mark, thanks for doing the interview. Yeah, no problem. Anytime. Thanks for listening to my latest podcast. If you have a chance, please leave a review of the podcast in iTunes. It only takes a moment. Until next time, read some good books and be well. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.